This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Fermanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life, become an agent for other intelligences, and begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to a new episode of Life Worlds. This week, we're delving into the world of finance and asking whether it's possible to support the life worlds of other species with some of the very same tools that have caused them harm. Our two guests will be working with very different approaches on this question. So first, we're joined by Lorenzo de Rosenzweig, who has headed Latin America's largest nature conservation trusts for more than 30 years. And then we'll have Eric Smith from the Grantham Neglected Climate Opportunities Fund, who will talk about venture capital investing in nature-based solutions. I'm interested in this topic because parallel to this podcast, I invest financial capital in projects that help to regenerate nature. And in that work, I quite often encounter tensions and philosophical quandaries, both in myself and in conversations with my peers. And so I'd like to break those down a little bit to kind of get a lay of the land, if you will. As a disclaimer, these are views that I hold today, and I'm constantly refreshing them, challenging them, and updating them. So this is far from being a comprehensive or, or final perspective on these subjects, and I definitely welcome a discussion. On one hand, it's important to acknowledge, as many ecologists and economists do, that nature and natural systems and the trillions of processes that enable life will never be fully uh, captured and priced by markets. It's simply too complex. And if you think about it, nature's value is infinite or trends towards infinity because it underpins everything, literally everything, that makes our human economy possible. And so it's almost impossible to fully capture that in a, a risk assessment or in a you know biodiversity credit because something will always slip away or flutter away beyond the realms of, of what can be pinned down by a number or metric. And a number or metric also won't tell us about the touch of rough bark under our fingertips or the flutter of a beetle's wing. It's not the role of capital to make us appreciate or love nature more. And so we should be very careful of selling nature in order to save it. And just a final point on this as a word of caution, because money is fungible, which means you can you know, trade one for one, it effaces a lot of distinctions and can trigger the further commodification and abstraction of nature. So something like carbon offsets or uh, cap and trade systems or credits can be called irreconcilable with indigenous or animist worldviews that quite rightly hold every expression of life as irreplaceable. However, finance can be used on behalf of nature 
And there are brilliant, brilliant ideas and sincere people out there who are pushing at the boundaries of the possible. You can look at the maturing industry of biodiversity markets, which do attempt to move beyond single metrics like carbon, or other approaches like debt for nature swaps or blue bonds, true cost accounting, payments for ecosystem services, and even very funky things like DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, where nature can own itself. So I've uploaded resources and readings on the LifeWorlds website for people who want to dig into the kinds of approaches that I think are, are pretty cool in this finance for nature space. And perhaps then the conversation is more about finding the right balance of not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good, as they say, and constantly checking that markets aren't getting in the way of the worldview that does restore the relationship with other life. With that said, let's hear from our first guest, who hails from the conservation trust world. Lorenzo de Rosenzweig is an engineer and marine biologist who for 25 years was the director of the Mexican Fund for the Conservation of Nature, and he's also been chairman of the Mesoamerican Reef Fund for 17 years, which is a 35 million endowment fund. And then during his tenure in both of those institutions, he mobilized effort that raised about $410 million for different landscape projects all across Mexico and Latin America. And Lorenzo is now working in his new association, Terra Habitus, which focuses on private lands conservation, borderlands cooperation, and regenerative ranching in northern Mexico. He's also a photographer and a watercolor artist. And I have a beautiful watercolor of a hummingbird that he once gifted me that is on my wall above my bed which makes me very happy every time I look at it. In our conversation, we're going to discuss some of these tensions I alluded to earlier. For example, how to reconcile nature's timelines with financial timelines, how to do his work well. He has been able to learn how to see through the eyes of other species. And he'll share also a vivid tale on how one whale saved an entire pelagic bay from a salt mining operation. Here is Lorenzo de Rosenweig, Today on LifeWorlds. During your time in Fondo or with Mar or across all the different initiatives that you've seen, is there an example that we can learn from today of some communication or translation that was made on behalf of another species that you think was incredibly successful and that the conservation and biodiversity movement can can kind of look to as an inspiring example. My, my advice would be open your senses and start with the easiest one or the most evident one. They say we are homovidens, which means that most of our functioning goes through instructions that go through vision, through the eyes. Of course, we use other senses, but this is the most important. Everything is manufactured around sight. So the first thing I would recommend is learn to see. Learn to see. It's amazing. Many people go through the world without seeing stuff. And this is a very simple story, but a wonderful person that was my mentor of life and my mentor in conservation. And he was also a bird watcher. He was a business person from Monterrey. His name, Andres Marcelo Sada. So he started taking us bird watching and we immediately got caught by the idea that there were so many different species, all of them different, different colors, different sizes, different shapes, different bills, different everything. So we became really 
avid bird watchers. And this is, I'm talking, I'm, I'm telling you 40 years ago. But then at the same time, we were having a, a life, a typical life in the city, and we would have a dinner and have a conversation. And there were people that told me that it was so funny that I was watching birds because what do you look at them? They are all brown. So basically, they are not looking at them. They saw a bird or something moving that I assume it was not a big insect, and they assumed it was a bird, but for them, all of them were either black or brown. They were not watching them. They were not looking at them. And same with plants, same with minerals, with landscapes. So my first recommendation would be always learn to see because it's not the same thing. For example, if you're looking at plants or flowers, don't look them from your standing up. Look them from the ground. Look them from below. Lie down, even if there's ants or ticks, but try to do something different so you have a different angle. Life is a combination of perspectives, of angles, and you have to learn how to see. So there's no such thing as a good photographer that cannot see, that cannot learn to take a different approach to things. Would you give me a second so I can take a sip of coffee? Please take as many sips as you, you want. It's all By good. the way, this is not, I don't know if this being taped, but air quality is so poor where I live. And again, that's a, another good example. You cannot see air quality. You can feel it slowly <clears throat> affecting you. Another example of we should be able to show air quality in a graphic way so that everybody understands the big mess we have with air quality. Yeah, I think, Lorenzo, you're touching on something that is so critical. And it's just the resensitizing of the human being. And it doesn't matter in what domain of conservation or honestly, in whatever career you're in. But we as a species, I believe, I might be wrong, but I do believe that we have lost so many of our sensitivities. And you spoke about one, sight, but also what we're taking into our bodies, air, et cetera, et cetera. And unless we become sensitive, that means becoming alive in our own bodies. We're not going to see the aliveness in the world around us. It will just be matter. It will just be a natural resource. You know, a forest will just be lumber. And that act of proximity, I love the image of you like on the ground with the ants. And it reminds me every time I go to a forest, if I can, I, I lie down in the moss and I'm like, this is a whole forest. Like it's small, but if I was this small, it's an entire forest. And that act of just getting close and getting incredibly curious, I, I think what's so inspiring about your example is you know, you're, you're heading these capital campaigns and you're operating with all of these big ecosystem players, but you're not going to do that work well unless you yourself are sensitive and attuned, right? And I think that a large part of your success has been that sensitivity. This is something that I do struggle with when it comes to the financial industry and doing some early startup venture investing myself. In your experience, when have the financial and economic cycles been so out of synchrony with the natural cycles that you've tried to work with and that you are working with? Like, how do you see those two systems at odds? And then the follow-on would be, how have you tried to reconcile them? Because some people say, capitalism and nature will never work together. They are fundamentally incompatible. Some people will say, no, we can fix nature through technology, through smart financing. Yes. When you compare financial cycles, when you look at the stock markets and that you see that everybody's avid on looking at the results of the next quarter and that will determine 
gains or losses in periods of time so short as a few months, that doesn't make sense because nature, as we know from hard science, nature works with hundreds of thousands, millions of years of adjustments, evolution, time frames. So what's my take? And yes, everything is different shades. There's no simple solution. Our bet is to do projects that somehow align with the financial status quo and provide hard information that we are doing the right thing so we gain time, so that we have the chance of looking a little bit more long-term and doing a few things more that look into the future. So basically, it's putting a foot in the door. And let me give you an example. There's a very, very known success story in Mexico in terms of biological regeneration. And it's a marine story, which you know as Cabo Pulmo in the southern tip of the Baja California Peninsula. So that place went through the whole cycle. It was a very abundant rocky reef in terms of biodiversity, carnivores, sharks, turtles, mammals, everything. And then a community settled there and then they were fishermen and they fished it out and then they realized there was no more fish. And somehow the community got organized and protected it. And 10 years after the protection, results were visible in terms of abundance you have a continuum of, of life. Larvae and, and other fishes came and colonized, and you started getting the place back to its original condition. Now, more than 20-something years after the decision of the community to protect it, the place is just exploding with life. This is a success story. This says this project, this place recovered from degradation and became again what it should be. And that was a 20-year time frame or a 10-year time frame to see some results and a 20-year time frame to see spectacular results. So my point is we should be looking at those examples where in 10 or 20-year time frames we can bring something back that brings quality of life, social justice, and brings nature back to the way it should be. Because then we have strong arguments to say, hey, then we should be doing more of this. And there is this other 50 or 60 or 20 sites where you can repeat the formula. So my point is that, yes, the regeneration of Earth will take hundreds of years, probably thousands of years, the way we have it now. But we have to start somewhere. And having this clash between the financial short-term, let me say, use that term, and the long-term needs of nature. And we have to find the common ground and show that in economic, social, and survival terms, it's much better to respect nature, to help it restore, and to work within limits. And I think that's another key word here, limits. Someone sold us many years ago the idea that there was no limits. Yes, there's limits. There's very crucial limits everywhere in the atmosphere, in the carbon cycle, in biodiversity loss, in the nitrogen cycle. Everything has limits because we live in a confined planet and we have reached a scale where we can just affect everything. So going back to your original question, we, the people that work in conservation, should look for examples that are functional in short-term periods like 10 20 years, because that is our argument to go to greater lengths. That sounds like those kinds of projects are your foot in the door for the much longer term projects that will require 50, 70, 80 years and a, a larger restructuring of all the other systems that overlap with the 
with the ecological systems. I think something that's interesting and that I personally am struggling to create a strong opinion around is the factoring of things like biodiversity, not only into risk assessments, but into credits and compensation and so on. Because you are, no matter what, taking an infinite amount of variables that are the greatest expression of complexity that we know, aka nature, the living world, all of these relationships, all these beings, and we're trying to create simple standardized ways of understanding them through metrics that can then be traded and bartered and sold. And yet it seems like factoring biodiversity or nature into, let's say, financial balance sheets is also absolutely critical because just not having it there is the biggest accounting error of them all. And so I believe that those who are working on those kinds of products and valuations and calculations must have some kind of ecological sensitivity if we're going to hopefully not make some tremendous errors in simplifying, oversimplifying. And as you say, it's this balance between what's a five, 10 year win, 20 year win to a five, 10 year win that was maybe lacking uh, certain important assumptions or factors. And then down the line, we, we realize we may have messed things up. So I don't know if in the course of your career, you either saw an example of something like that, or if what I just mentioned is something that you have concerns about or that you're also tracking in your own way. A good example of how the emotions play against the economics and the politics I do have. It's a very old example during the presidency of uh, Ernesto Cedillo, and that was 1994 to year 2000. And there was this big clash between government, foreign investment, and the conservation community because they wanted to expand the operation of a state-run salt mining enterprise. And they wanted to expand it from Guerrero Negro, which is, let's say, halfway through the peninsula on the Pacific. And they wanted to expand it to Laguna San Ignacio, which is middle. Gray whales use three lagoons, Guerrero Negro, San Ignacio, and Bahia Magdalena for their calving season. That's where the little gray whales are born and then get strong and then they go back to Alaska. But anyhow, for us, and San Ignacio was a protected area. So it was a big clash because an international company, it was the government very much interested. And guess what changed everything? Because we did analysis and we had meetings and it was a big, big, messy affair. In the end, what changed things is that the then Minister of the Environment, which is one of the most amazing persons I have ever met because of her commitment, Julia Carabias, and because her professionalism and real, real conservation agenda she had, she had this great idea. She invited the president to see the whales in the middle of the clash. So basically the president accepted to go to a one-day field trip to see the whales. So he took the president, his wife, and his children, put them on a boat, and took them to see the whales. And that's all she did. So, so, and they somehow, a very smart whale knew he was a, an important person and became very friendly with them. But the emotional experience that he had recognizing that this was beyond markets, this was beyond finance, this was beyond creating jobs, this was a world miracle. And so he came back and said, forget it, the project is canceled, this stays as a protected area. That is an example, an experience where a sensitive person sees something he cannot see from the office. Nature can give you 
so powerful messages that after that you are completely engaged in a new vision, a new principle, a new way of doing things. Oh, I love that story for so many reasons. The first is like, thank you to that whale <laughs> who knew that their whole fate depended on this president falling in love with the whales. And I think it's also interesting that the kids were there and often the path to a greater ecological consciousness is through people's children. I've heard those anecdotes many times. What's so poignant about your story is that, one, how do you bring as many people who have that decision-making power to those places as possible? That is tricky. And I think especially as everyone believes that we can now do everything on Zoom, why would I, why would I travel four days? You know, I, I have everything I need to know. So convincing people to have that experiential process is, is a challenge, but I think it is one that I would encourage everyone to try and do and to bring people to those places. And the second part of that is we need a few, as you said, strongholds of alive places to bring people to. Otherwise, you know, this concept of the shifting baseline syndrome, where if you've never seen an all growth forest, that you think that every skinny tree farm is just a forest. And if that project had happened, maybe there would have been no whales to visit 10 years later. And so I think that going back to what you said before about those quicker gain short-term projects, they're also essential in creating these little uh, refugia of lands where people can go to, to understand, okay, like the human species is not at the top of this pyramid. There's actually all these other forms of life. And just by spending time with them, I will naturally be humbled. As you said, every human being has that biophilic capacity. So your anecdote is a beautiful and inspiring one. And I think that for people listening, I think it also is an inspiring one as to why we need to protect some of these places, not just for the creatures who live there. Obviously, that's the most important, but for our own human imagination and ability to connect and love. And I think be more of whatever, we, whatever we're here to be. These places that we regenerate are just an example of, of what life on Earth should be. And they become... If well managed, they become showcases, they become examples of what our vision is for the world. And I think children should be considered in this formula because I think very responsible to be taking decisions as adults when really we are on our way out. And making a stronger argument of this transgenerational responsibility, I think that's the key to open many political minds and many political wills and make change happen. That's that's so beautifully said. A final question. Is there a particular life lesson that you've learned from another creature, another species, something that you saw or someone who you spent time with and they altered your way of being? They, they brought you some kind of lesson and some kind of wisdom. And I'm sure you have a lot of stories, but if there's maybe one that might come to mind. Yes, I've had many, but probably the most amazing one is that one day in the Gulf of California, when I had the privilege of traveling and visiting nature and the islands and the amazing assortment of marine mammals in the Gulf of California with my friend Sven Lindblad, we were exploring in one of the zodiacs and suddenly we saw what you call a fish ball, una pelota de peces, a fish ball. So that means that there's lots of sardines and there's uh, birds falling from top and sea lions and tuna and sharks feeding from below. And somehow the protection of the sardines 
becomes like a spherical school of fish. And it's, it's amazing to see it. So we got into the water, three of us, a photographer, a naturalist, and myself. And it was an amazing experience because we could see the fish and sea lions like rockets come from below, from the deep blue. We could see the birds splashing and getting into the water at our side. And at the same time, after a while, there were so many scales in the water that it was like a silver rain all around, and the light was perfect, and, and transparency was perfect, uh, and everything was perfect. So it was an amazing experience. But the real connection, the real intraspecies connection happened many minutes later. Believe it or not, the fishbowl was reduced from several meters into a much smaller fishbowl, and suddenly we realized that it was a two-feet fishbowl uh, left, the last survivors from this uh, feeding frenzy. And believe it or not, they came very close to us because somehow they figured that we were not the ones that were eating them. And in an inspirational moment, the three of us held our hands together with our feet down and our heads up. We held our hands and we created like a safe space and automatically the fishbowl moved into that space. And it's probably the most magical moment in my life because just floating in that immense space, blue space, really vulnerable because you don't know what's below. So you're floating there. But we were confident holding our hands and the last 100, 200 fish in a very compact, perfectly circular fishbowl swimming in the middle of us. So that was like a powerful message saying, between species, we can help. And of course, many will die and many will be eaten because that's nature. But we have an obligation towards the rest of the world not to mess it up big scale. So I think we have to work with our hearts and with our intelligence of slowly bringing things back to the way they should be. There's so much to take away from what Lorenzo shared. And in the full hour, which can be found right beside wherever you found this, we get into the mechanics of conservation trusts and uh, what are called intermediary institutions, if that's something you want to learn more about. Changing tack now, we are joined by Eric Smith. Eric Smith and I were both in Mexico for a climate investing conference and recorded this episode with beachside sand crumbling in our toes. Eric has spent his career working at the intersection of economics and nature, and most recently he was the director of the venture capital vehicle Neglected Climate Opportunities at the Grantham Environmental Trust. In that role, he co-led over 40 direct investments in startups across all stages that can remove carbon and GHG, greenhouse gases, at scale. He was previously with SJF Ventures and BlackRock, also working on climate finance, and he's currently the founder and CEO of Edacious, a company that's working to connect the dots between soil and human health. As always, I'm your host, Alexa Fermanish, and you're listening to Life Worlds. You said before, how do you talk to nature? You're in the you're in the forest, you're in the landscape, you're on the ground, you can speak to the human stakeholders. And you said this interesting thing, like you said, I talk to nature. So I don't think they teach you how to talk to nature uh, in a forestry degree. We've had some foresters come on the podcast and they have things to say about forestry and institutions. And I think that science, certain forms of science can really embed you in an ecosystem. And But how have your 
degrees in science been thrown out the window in a certain situation where you've been there and you're like, actually the land, this nature wants something different and none of my existing frameworks are helping me, but I just know, I know that this is what this land wants. Has that happened to you in your career? I, I think that's been the, you've summarized my tension in, in agriculture, right? I mean, like agriculture is just so difficult. I mean, look at the situation in, in Ukraine. I mean, I, I thought personally we were at a point where we had a surplus of calories that we were producing successfully as a society. Uh, one small war has completely disrupted that equation. And there are people that are going to starve globally as a result of this crisis because we've taken, you know, five to 10% of wheat and corn out of production. And that, I mean, that's real. I'll bring this back to forestry, but this optimization question, like we're not going to get rid of modern day industrial farming as it exists today. There's just too many people that need to be fed. And that's where that tension exists. When I see that practice like that, like nature does not want this form of agriculture. She, she clearly wants something else. And luckily, we've both seen the potential of regenerative agriculture to unlock that. And so here's the tension, Alexa, that I, that I wrestle with. Um, one of the most interesting concepts that I learned in forestry was, this again, this question of optimization. So let's say you have a unit and logic in certification world would say you certify that unit and you practice the same sustainable management practices uniformly across that unit. What would a unit be like? A tree? Uh, a stand, multiple stands, um, a watershed, a spatial area. Now, Math and science tells us you can optimize the outputs on that unit by um, segregating the unit in different ways. So let's say 40% is dedicated to conservation and 60% is dedicated to, you know, a, a pretty rigorous harvest management scheme. Your benefits, both in harvesting, extraction, and conservation benefits will be higher when you segregate the attributes on the property as opposed to trying to uniformly manage the property to mat, uh, optimize both of those outcomes. Now, the same thing is true for, for agriculture, right? I don't think the answer is to uniformly practice regenerative agriculture on every acre. There's going to be acres that are going to be continued to be very extractive. Uh, they can be less extractive and they can be more in balance. But the goal is to take land out of production and return that to nature and rewild that land. We're going to get much greater conservation benefits and outcomes when we think about managing for nature and conservation benefits on the fringes, on the exterior, the uh, removal of land from production systems, developing biological corridors and, and, and um, buffer zones. They're going to be more impactful at scale when we do those practices than saying every acre must have pollinator strips, must have agroforestry, must have, you know, the perfect regenerative system. So I bring a little bit more of a, a realist isn't the pr proper word, but more of a awareness of the challenges of the transformation of our system that are needed to pull us forward. And I want... I want us to work on, 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 on incremental steps as opposed to rapid transformation. Yeah, and 
if I'm hearing you correctly, the tension that you face in your work is because of how far down this particular road we've gone and it, you don't stare that around overnight, compromises have to be made. And sometimes we have to make interventions that the land, the species that live on it, the organisms might not necessarily want immediately. But if we do this, we'll move you towards something better because we can't change overnight and we can't do this everywhere right now. I mean, I was reading this 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 article about, I think it was Sri Lanka, they tried to go organic uh, incredibly rapidly and right before and then during the pandemic and it fell into shambles for a bunch of different reasons, namely because the land has to go through its uh, drug addiction recovery process. And so, you know, these things won't happen overnight and so we have to make sacrifices and sometimes we have to look at, okay, is this close to what nature would want in some way, even if it's imperfect. The question that you raise in optimization is also a really interesting one, because you're right, certain financial and management systems teach us to optimize energy and so on and so forth. And it's a very narrow definition of metrics that we optimize for. And ecosystems are a plurality of different life forms that together optimize for health. But if you only look at three or four metrics of ecosystem health and then you start to optimize for those, you begin to neglect the very nuanced, more subtle, less known and documented ones. And so I think also in, in what I'm hearing you describe, it's like, how can we not be wasteful with energy and how can we not lose time, but throw the idea of optimization a bit on, out of the window and add complexity to what it is we're trying to optimize and adding complexity isn't, okay, we'll just have a pollinator row everywhere and now it's complex. It's like, the landscape needs to be a lot more messy and 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 kind of convoluted and not convoluted, but um, multifaceted. Yeah. Well, okay. Let's, let's unpack what you just said, which is basically do narrow sets of metrics, are they proxy enough for the complexity of the system that if you focus on a certain subset of metrics, will they have beneficial outcomes to the system? And I, I think you're right. The, it's not a straightforward answer. Uh, it won't always produce the desired outcomes. And frankly, it could produce the wrong outcomes. And we are absolutely seeing that play out live with the carbon conversation right now. Like, as we just drill on carbon, 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 we are losing total a holistic frame for all of the co-benefits associated with these transformations. And that's where you get into a lot of tension. And we, you know, our, our investment strategy is segregated between natural climate solutions uh, and basically abiotic, technical, and carbon removal type solutions. And we we debate that. We think it's an and, uh, and you need both. But the, the, the carbon lens and frame ignores so much of the importance of restoration, regeneration that comes with, with the intrinsic value of those systems. The definition in conservation, conservation finance, um, it, it really has changed because we have consistently applied a economic lens and framework, which assume, subsumes a, a, an extractive-based model, right? So what is the value of nature? That's an economic lens. It means what can we as humans extract from this? And then, okay, if we're being less extractive, we're being more sustainable, or we're only harvesting what can grow and not more. And then regenerative is, you know, we're, we're harvesting less than what's growing, so that it keeps replenishing over time. But it's still, the basis is economic lens. It's extractive in its sense. It's saying, what is the value 
that I can create as a human interacting with this system. Now, the other side of that is the intrinsic value of nature, right? So it's what is the value of an entity that it has in and of itself, right? And so when you switch from that, the value of nature to the intrinsic value of nature, you start moving into this nature has a right to exist in and of itself because of the complexities and the beauty and the species and the functions that it provides, not for our benefit, for its own benefit. And it's going to be really tough for us to move into that frame in our current economic model. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that tension, and I'm sure you are too, with this you know, uh, rights of nature movement. It's as soon as you say that this species or this river has a right to exist and a right to the same rights that people and corporations have, how do you balance those two uh, things? And that's that's I'm, I'm excited to see that conversation play out live over the next few years. This is a fascinating part of the conversation, especially when it comes to investing in finance. In a way, capitalism is the substrate that guides most of the actions and structures that we see around ourselves today. And people have considered it akin to a form of religion or it's just, it, it is the dominant belief system that most people in the world, whether they want it or not, are enmeshed in it. It's kind of like the riverbed, like the, the stone of the riverbed in which all water flows and gets carried and moves. And so the assumptions under which we're operating inside of this version of capitalism are imperfect in trying to transition us towards intrinsic right, intrinsic value, infinite complexity, and yet we need to go there somehow. And um, I spend a lot of time thinking about that. I have absolutely no answer for it, but I want to talk about it today. Even the language that is currently used, like how does this feel for you? You know, when you, when you refer to a tree as biomass, when you say what we're going to extract from a forest, when you speak about a living, breathing, sentient ecosystem, as a natural resource that provides you an ecosystem service. When you come up against that language that you have to use every day to be intelligible to different constituents in, in your kind of work, how does that land in you? And are there ways that you have tried or experimented to, to shift it? And then people think you're like a daisy chain-making hippie. I, I mean, I hope they do. And I hope that's always the case. Um, I think that it you know, speaks to both of our dynamicism and, and playing different roles. And I think that's that's what we are as facilitators is being able to jump between these life worlds to um, speak to different groups and bridge them. That's, you know, how we became friends and 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 how we think about the world is, is connecting dots. So, you know, I, I, I'm going to carry the, the thread a little bit, right? I think it's an ant. It's always going to be an ant. This concept of like commoditization of ecosystems based on a web three type approach of financially commoditizing every ecosystem service from the land so that it can be packaged up, derived in a financial market and has a set value that's, you know, traded on an exchange. Like there's space for that in the world. But the other half and which is again, pure conservation, my pure heart of heart, I more subscribe to E.O. Wilson in a way, which is half Earth. Now, that's a case-by-case basis, and, and you have to make those decisions with, with you know, private and public stakeholders and the communities that are on the ground managing those resources. But there's places that we can protect, that we should be protecting, and that should be not 
associated with any type of resource extraction because, again, the intrinsic value of that nature, it should exist for its own self. And that my heart as an environmentalist, as an outdoorsman, as someone who has traveled, I am grounded in the natural world. I get vibrational coherence when I am in nature. I am happier, healthier, and more in sync with myself when I am in the wilds of the world around us. And I'm lost when I'm not. So that for me is why you protect nature is because I understand my relationship with it. And that that only has happened recently. I always did it subconsciously, but now really understanding that I am who I am and I'm grounded in these systems as a result of my experiences and my love for them. So conservation and protection is essential. Yeah, I think there's something in in the architecture venture that is unbiological in its timeframes, in the way that it extracts from founders themselves. I'm sure you've experienced that in the ways that uh, term sheets are written. And I think it's incredibly ironic sometimes that the industry or one of the industries that's claiming to and holds a lot of potential to reorient the world's challenges is itself implicated in a lot of the dynamics that are disruptive. Wholeheartedly agree with you. Um, it is it is only the right model for certain situations where it's a lot of capital. When you pour gasoline on a fire, uh, it consumes a lot of energy. And you need things that can go quick and consume that energy and have a place to redirect it, right? I, th- I just think it's it's really appropriate for some type of businesses and not appropriate for other type of businesses. But because it's the de facto model that we have today, it's just been adopted full, full stop as being the right model. Is there an example from investments that you've made where it was the perfect model and maybe another investment you've made where you're like, huh, this could have taken another form, but it's under this umbrella now. Yeah. Let's look at a company called Hazel Technologies. You know, they make a a little sachet that looks like a sugar packet, and it has uh, a a chemical formulation inside. It's a methyl ethylene inhibitor that prevents the decay of fruit and vegetables. So when a fruit, piece of fruit is decaying, uh, the chemistry is sending signals that I'm going to decay, and it gets hit with this chemical uh, back at it and say, don't decay or slow down your process of decay. And it's incredibly cheap to produce. It's incredibly available. Uh, The team can go really fast and build a company. And they can distribute that sachet globally in a way that allows them to prevent the degradation of millions and billions and billions and billions of pounds of food. So that is something that can take a lot of capital. It can go fast. It can find the right market with the right team and the right business that can be transformative. Absolutely. This other example I'm going to choose not to use a name towards, but we'll talk about it in concepts. Um, They have figured out a way to uh, rapidly, rapidly regenerate soils through a combination of a mineral microbe nutrition formula that's applied to the soil that involves, uh, again, some coal, rock dust, uh, microbes, that soil amendment plus uh, a change in management practices, they can achieve, let's say, in a rotational grazing type system with that amendment, you can pull down 30 tons of carbon 
per hectare easily. And that's, again, because of the nature of grasses and, and how they work and, and moving in a um, regenerative grazing type way uh, allows for rapid, rapid regeneration because of the recycling of nutrients. That business model is fantastic. So if you underwrite that to carbon, you're like, wow, like, look at this. We could do this all day. And the result is it is incredibly difficult to scale. It is labor intensive. There's just a lot of reasons that say dumping venture capital money all over this thing is not going to help it go fast. And you're funding a business that takes time to uh, accumulate customers and revenue and, and contracts. And so I, I actually think a lot of our regen ag business models that are being pursued by venture capital are going to find they're not going to work really well. What kind of financing would you give that operation? I would look to our uh, portfolio company, Steward, right? So you could use debt financing to basically set up the operation and invest in those soils. And then your uh, expectation is that they're going to sell you know, a higher quality beef as a result from that property uh, and maybe some carbon credits. And, and you can sell that. That beef will have kind of a two to three-year timeline, and you can use credit with a three- to five-year timeline and, and kind of have an on-flowing cash cycle there that, 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 that pays for itself. So, um, yeah, I don't think we use debt enough. Debt isn't sexy. Debt isn't transformative. doesn't feel that way. But uh, for many of our regen ag investments, debt is going to be because it's about transformation. Transformation takes time, and debt has a certain level of structure and term and patience around it that allows very clear expectations and a very clear contract. And when you underwrite that debt, you're looking at the potential return from that from that property that's being managed in that way. And so you can understand because you can forecast those cash flows that allow you to say, will they be able to service this debt? It's all pretty con- contextual in terms of what, what, what's the right tool for, for the transformation. Where are the most interesting conversations happening in this space right now? I'm not talking the climate tech space. I'm talking about people who are thinking deeply about the nature of deep ecology and ecosystems and how we use finance on behalf of nature. Like where, where do investors go when they hear this? They're like, wow, I want to be a part of this movement. I want to learn more. I want to understand. I want to be part of a learning group. Like, where do those conversations happen in your experience? Yeah, I, I think one, I would turn to you <laughs> for that question and ask where where are these conversations happening? Because I wish they were more happening. Um, I, I would say where I've seen them happen the most is is in, in literature. A, a book will kind of explode or gain fast notoriety that will really cause a lot of people to shift their thinking. Um, in, in the one that I would, reference and leads to another, you know, touch point in our relationship is The Entangled Wet, Merlin Sheldrake. Um, that book really, so he's such a beautiful writer and really transformed my way of seeing the ground beneath our feet. And that has really catalyzed, I'd say, thrown energy on a, a fire of mycelium uh, mushroom the trend that's happening right now, all the way from food to, to plant-based medicine to restoration, remediation through all of these fungal pathways. I think that that's where a lot, to answer your question, I think there's a lot of energy around that space right now that's coalescing in different places. 
And so I'd say it, it maybe it's not happening in a, at like a, the, across the themes that you mentioned. It's more happening within certain touch points. And obviously one of those touch points that, you know, I would regret not bringing up because it's one of our favorite things is, is Spun. Um, Spun is the Society for the Protection of Underground Networks. And it's about really bringing, uh, protecting and harnessing the fungal networks that regulate uh, our climate and our ecosystems. As you begin, and I went on this regen ag journey, you really start to understand the importance of mycelium networks and the amount of carbon that's being pumped through them and the amount of nutrients that are being transferred through them back to the plants. And so uh, I, I'm just I'm obsessed with it, love it. I'm so excited to see it take off. And, and I think that's a great touch point to say the deep ecology, the investment community, these disparate groups are coming together around a concept that says we need to protect this. But if we're smart, we can also harness this in a way that regenerates our soils, regenerates our health, regenerates our mind and body. So I'm really, really excited about that. Yeah, that's a beautiful example. And it leads to a really critical point that I um, don't think it's raised enough in the investment industry. If you're really serious about regenerating ecosystems, if you're really serious about looking at the oceans, forests, landscapes, agricultural plains, and if you're only doing that through for-profit capital, if you're only trying to invest in either public equities or some debt instruments or private companies, then you're talking half a game. And I'm sorry, that might sound very harsh, but so much of what needs to be done is basic science. So much of what needs to be done is basic technical assistance on the ground capacity building and teams. There are so many amazing initiatives all over the world inside of communities and ecosystems, and they need support. And, and that cannot always come with a financial return. And so if it's within your financial scope to some form of capital that doesn't require any return directly to you, but that is building up a field that could or could not attract further investment, sometimes you've just got to fund the thing without even thinking it's going to generate money down the line. And so I think there's a lot of talk in, in venture and otherwise of, uh, yeah, we want to do good and you can make money and do good at the same time. And, and yes, of course. But I don't think there's enough conversation on how people are using all forms of their capital and giving up a little bit in order to truly walk the talk fully. And that's something that I do feel quite strongly about, and I know it can make people uncomfortable. But I, I think we have to say, and I think I think we're both very good at saying the uncomfortable things, and they need to be said more often. We need to explore alternative models, right? It goes back to the, you know Milton Friedman saying, "Maximize your personal wealth, and and then you get to decide what you what you do with that wealth, and you get to be a philanthropist and give that away." But I think if we take a different tact, as you say which is if we grow these organizations and the science along with us while we're creating this wealth, we will grow together and it'll be mutually beneficial. And that, you know, as something as simple as having not-for-profits on your cap table or ensuring a percentage of your revenue goes to some mission or some organization, being a public benefit corporation and, and allocating resource, having the discretion and control to allocate resources differently that that's happening. I mean, it, it is, but can we take that a step further? And we absolutely can. And I think we should push on that. I think we should pull on that lever a little bit more. Absolutely. And I don't think we'll get into it in the scope of this conversation, but 
just in general, wealth and land redistribution. We're not going to get to a place worth going to if that isn't fundamentally addressed. And that's not necessarily the job of venture capital and it's not necessarily the job of certain types of investments, but those who are doing those things, if they're not also taking a good hard look at that aspect of of their lives, um, I think are uh, missing out a really critical piece. Before we wrap, was there anything that you felt that you wanted to share or talk about today that I haven't asked you about? Actually, that thread that you were just pulling on. As you know, I'm working on my next project. And part of where that project is focused is returning power uh, back to producers and consumers throughout the food system. And just like we treat our agriculture system, we treat we are extractive from our producers. Uh, it's a commodity-based system. We extract as much as possible. They have very little power. And so if you want to get back to you know, improving the land, improving uh, land tenure rights and all these things, you have to return wealth back to those producers because those producers are going to invest in the land. They're going to invest in themselves. They're going, they know the land better than anyone. They're the reason we're alive. And as you think about all the places in the food system, that, that supply chain that capture additional margin and you see a higher price at the end of the day, <laughs> none of that margin increase is going back to that producer. It's only getting more and more expensive and harder to be a producer. And so for me, if you, if you want to flip this model on its head and regenerate the land, we have to return the wealth back to the producers. And so, yeah, stay tuned for the next project because I think we're, we're both pretty excited about how we uh, empower those, those groups. Eric, thank you so much. The first in-person interview delivered. <laughs> Thank you, Alexa. It's been an absolute pleasure being here with you and, and, and so grateful for our friendship. And um, I can't wait to hear all the interesting guests that you've been talking about. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And do stay tuned for a fresh episode coming out in two weeks' time, where we'll be learning all about Indigenous ceremonies, protocols, and how to carve totem poles. As per our tradition on the show... We will end with a fun life world's fact that will bring you into the world of another species. So we heard about a whale today. All toothed whales have a melon-sized mass of tissue in their foreheads. Yep, a melon-sized mass of tissue in the forehead. <laughs> Sounds a bit uncomfortable, but it focuses their calls for their communication and echolocation. So this organ kind of allows them to emit sonar and receive songs right from their forehead. And this means that as a whale, you can see feeling sound. And this is how you begin to learn the specific song of your family or clan, because many whale species actually have their own songs that are passed down from grandmother to daughter to grandchild, which is really quite beautiful. So that's it for me today on Life Worlds. As always, I'd love to hear from you, so please do reach out to me on the website lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to finance to technology and life at large. Subscribe to our email list and I'll see you back here soon. <laughs>